practice it. Um, but one of the ways to keep the church peaceful and pure uh, is, and so we, one of the vows that was just taken, that you would pursue the peace and the purity of the church. Uh, because that is God's goal, it is our goal. And so let's open his word. We're going to read a passage in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, which gives this pattern. I'm really only going to talk about verse 15 this week. Uh, we'll start moving forward in the next couple of weeks. But hear then the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in my fa- by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. That you are God who is not silent, but you have spoken. You have loved us enough to teach us, to lead us, to discipline us, to Leave us a word here that if we should obey its wisdom would lead us to peace and purity as a church. Father, we would bow the knee before you this morning and would hear you speak into our lives and into the life of this church that we may obey your word. Father, we long to see the life and the health that is meant to come from it in our midst. For we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I've raised two kids. Some of you, if you've been parents, have been or are in the midst of your uh, parenting, you, you understand or you should understand that one of your goals in parenting your children is you are uh, teaching them and training them to become self-disciplined. Right? The goal is ultimately that they will know enough, that they will learn enough, that they will see the wisdom of the things that you've taught them and helped them with and shown them all through the years, that the day will come when they will go out from you and make good choices, right? That they would be self-disciplined, that the things that you try to build in and around their lives to help them, that they would own that themselves and indeed one day perhaps train other children. But the goal is to become self-disciplined, to learn to make good choices, do the right thing, avoid the wrong things, and ultimately to do it without your parents having to tell you. You would know the right thing to do, that you would have learned it, you know. And so parents, we set, you know, bedtimes, and we set curfews, we set limits, you know. We want them to eat the right things and not the wrong things. And no, you can't have ice cream for breakfast, and no, you can't have two gallons of it. And we're going to, like, there's, there are, you know, we help them. Tell them not to hit other people, to say thank you, and stay out of the road. 
You know, these are all boundaries, but they're, they're, all, they're all discipline. This is the positive side of discipline. You know, it's like an athlete training, uh, you know, for the great event or the, for the Olympics. That, you know, the training he goes into, he, he has a diet, what he eats, and, a, and often a curfew and a bedtime and, a, and things like this. And he does it. It's positive. He does it because he wants to be something. He wants to achieve something to perform at a certain level. And as parents, we are positively bringing those discipline things in their lives because we want them to be something, to, to achieve something. We want them to grow. We want them, we love them. So we discipline them very positively at first, you know, but if we say, you know, stay out of the road, I won't tell that story, my own son, <laughs> and how he got in the road, we do know still, but, but when the neighbor brought him home, we, uh, you know, you could tell him not to go in the road, and discipline becomes negative when those positive things, what I'm doing right now in preaching is positive discipline. Right? It's like, it's like training. It's the training we as God's children, you know, it's, it's the positive side where those boundaries are set. But when those boundaries are broken, when my son came back, we set the boundaries for his good because we love him, right? And so, you know, this cannot happen again, right? And so there are some negative things that have to happen to help us to learn, help him to learn to do the right things. Much of church life is positive, proactive discipline. You know, the setting of boundaries is to stay out of the road and to not hit other people. And it comes in the preaching. It comes in the teaching in the small groups and in discipleship and in, in our relationships together. There's a positive formation that takes place. It's a positive discipline. And sometimes there's a time to go and to have to engage in negative discipline when people wander and people stray in the life of the church, because we love them. If they're wandering out in the road, the loving thing to do is, A, to get them out of the road, and to try to help them to see not to go back in the road. In fact, let me help you, right? You know, I'll be on your side to, te- you know, walk you through this. So what, what the Scripture says, not only here but elsewhere in all of the New Testament, I think, is that the Christian life is a community project. The Christian life, and I know we live in America, and John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and the manly man who can do it alone, and he's an island. But the scripture is so clear that the Christian life, though it is a personal, a personal relationship with the Lord, though the Christian life is personal, it's not private. That we're part of a family and a community, and really it's, 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 it's a project that needs the community. We desperately need each other to be involved in our lives, to help us. We are obsessed with privacy. I know, I'm worried sometimes, like, which of my devices are listening to me, you know, and who's listening, and what are they doing with that information? And, and I know we become very obsessed with our privacy to the point that we struggle with what it means to be a part of a community and to let other people in. And that is something at a personal level and at, and at this level that God, that's the way God has designed it. It, it is his very design that we desperately need the gifts and the love and the gospel from the lips and the lives of the people around us. Jesus says we need to be involved in each other's spiritual lives. We need to help each other in the path of obedience, both positively and negatively. Galatians 6.1 says that if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone, so who, like 
if anyone in, in, is caught in a transgression, in, in sin, they're getting trapped and, and stuck, they're getting stuck, you who are spiritual should restore him. If you see it, help them in gentleness, in love, because you're on their side and you don't want them to get stuck and, and, and run over in the road and all the damage and pain and that can come from it. So it says get involved and it invites us to a community project. If you see me caught in sin, it invites you to come alongside and to tell me and to help me. Sin, by definition, in its way, is self-deceiving. It's hard to see in ourselves. It's easy to justify in ourselves and excuse in ourselves. And it's also heart-hardening. That the more we're in it and the longer we're in it, the harder it is to get out of it and the harder it is for me even really to hear you speak to it. You know, and it tells us to not let our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But that's the way of it. If my heart can be deceived and hardened in its deceit, I need other people who can see my blind spots and would love me enough to not leave me stuck. God is very protective of his church. He loves his church. He hates strife and division, and he hates brokenness and sin. And he loves the peace, and he loves the purity. And often those are very related. The peace and purity of his church, the bride of Christ, a blood-bought people. When Jesus is praying for the church on his last night on earth, in his last night and his last prayers as he's with his people, he prays this, that they may all, that my church, that my people, my family, my blood-bought, adopted brothers and sisters, that they would all be one, just as you, Father, and me are in me, and I am in you. Just as we are one, involved in each other's lives, you are in me, and I am in you. Just as we are that connected and involved in each other's lives, that they, too, would be in us. That they, too, would be one and connected in this intimate, profound way. And this, he says... So that even that the world may believe, and as we're talking a lot about outreach and, and bringing Stephen on as a as a assistant pastor of outreach, you know, and as somewhere as we want to continue to develop and to go in that direction, we've talked a lot about missional communities, and how and how people are often brought into community before they are brought into faith, and that often it's through getting to know people and building a relationship and seeing Christ in other people's lives and, and learning and hearing in a, in a non-threatening context and, and how the community is actually one of the doorways in. So the community has to be healthy, right? It has to be strong. If part of our testimony is that the world may know. Life without conflict, my friends, is not possible. It's not possible in a fallen world. It's not possible in a fallen church full of sinful people. And that's all of us, right? It's just not possible that we're not going to have conflict, that we're not going to be at odds. Like any family, like any friendship, the more time we spend together, the more our warts become visible to one another, 
right? And we see, right? And we, we stumble. We step on each other's feet. The closer you are, the more we step on each other's feet and jostle each other's shoulder. It's inevitable that we'll sin against each other, that we'll let each other down, that we will hurt or fail or disappoint each other. And there is a sense in which it's normal, right? In the sense that it's inevitable and that it will happen. And so there's an old saying that says, if you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to have to keep looking. Um, but if you find it, don't join it, because you'll ruin it, right? Because <laughs> right? there's no perfect church, and we're not perfect people. And if you did find the perfect church, you'd be the one to ruin it, right? Because we know it's not a question of if, it's a question of when these things will happen. And so the crucial question becomes, how will we handle our conflict? How will we handle it? It's crucial in a family. It's crucial in a marriage. It's crucial in our friendships. It's not if, but when, and, and then how. And so Jesus tells us how. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear, and he loves his church. Right? And he did not leave us to try to sort it out. He said, here's how I want you to handle it. And this is one of the reasons why we say, you know, a true church is a church that follows this pattern. Because not follow this pattern is to not follow Jesus. Because Jesus says, handle it like this. So he's given us a God-given plan for conflict resolution. He outlines the path for reconciliation, for healing. He says, verse 15, and we're going to stay in 15 today. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If your brother sins against you. Now, interestingly, as I was reading, I found that in some of the earliest manuscripts, just a couple of them, so there's sort of a mixed history on that particular phrase, but in, the, in two of the earliest manuscripts, it doesn't say against you. It just says, if your brother sins, go to him and tell him, which would line right up with Galatians 6.1, what we just read. If anyone is caught in any transgression, go to him, help him, right? Help him get unstuck, right? Get involved. And so that could be saying it here, but at the very least, you know, there is a lot of evidence, too, that the against you is there if, if, if a brother sins against you. But whether it's there or not, it certainly and especially maybe includes if they sin against you, how close and how obvious would that be that you should get involved in fixing it and making it right. So when he says, if your brother, now brother should be read inclusively, sisters. So if your brothers and sisters... Right? If you're brother or sister, it's inclusive in that sense, and it assumes a few things. First of all, it assumes family, real family. You know, I don't know, I don't, I don't think when the Bible talks about the church as a family that it is metaphorical. Adoption makes real children, right? In, in that culture and in our culture, adopted children are full children, and they are brothers and sisters in a full and real sense. And so it assumes family, right? Brother, if your brother or your sister, it assumes a mutual submission to the lordship of Jesus because that's what it means to be in his family, that you've submitted to the lordship of Jesus so you have an undeserved desire, unreserved desire to please him you know, in, these, in these things. It assumes that both of us are submitted to this command and to this process because I always tell people, how do you know a follower of Christ is that they're following Christ? And to follow Christ means that you know his word and you obey his word and you're seeking to live a life that is pleasing to him. The only, you know, the mark of a follower of Jesus is that he's following Jesus. 
Which is why when people stop following Jesus and start disobeying and going outside of God's word, that we have to go after them because they're not following Jesus at that place. And the goal is to bring them to follow Christ because we love them. And so it assumes that both of us will be submitted to this. He gives it as a family rule. You know, put it on the wall, like on the refrigerator at home. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won him. And there's healing, and there's, there's all of that. It assumes that a genuine Christian, when they're confronted by sin, will repent. It assumes that a genuine Christian, we say again, what are the marks of a Christian? One of, the, one of the genuine marks is that he's following Jesus and that when it becomes apparent to him that he's not following Jesus, that he is repentant, that he would turn from his sin and he would return to following Jesus, that he would repent, that he wants to follow Christ, he wants to please him, he wants to obey him. Right? And so one of the marks you know, is that you are following and that when you're off, it, it assumes that a genuine believer confronted by their sin would hate their sin and, not, and, and, and be appalled that, that, that that's where they are and want to be right with Jesus. It says if he sins against you, if he sins. And so I would first say it should clearly be sin um, that we're dealing with, right? And if he, what makes sin clear is that the Bible is clear that it's a sin. So there are a lot of things that we may, there are a lot of things I think that the Bible's not clear about that we should, that we should be careful confronting other people about. But where the Bible is clear, I, I learned early in my Christian life, I was told, where the Bible is clear and dogmatic, you should be clear and dogmatic. Where the Bible is not clear and not dogmatic, then you need to be more careful, a little more humble and circumspect in the way that you handle it. Um, and so on, on some of it here is, is, is it clearly something that the Bible says is wrong? And if so, um, then the loving thing to do would be to get involved. Notice that when he says, that when he, if he sins against you, uh, sin here is, is completely nondescript. Say there's no description. There's no, doesn't say big sin or little sin or public sin or private sin or scandalous sin. or doesn't say it just says if, there is, if there's sin. And at this point, as far as we know, nobody else knows but two people. Right? So you got these two people and it's a nondescript sin. If there's sin, if he sinned against you or if there's sin and it's clearly something that's against the Bible, the loving thing to do would be to confront it, to talk about it, to talk to him about it or her. And it could be anything. Now I would say this, just as a quick clarification, that it needs to not be criminal. <laughs> that, that there are things that are, that are not only sins but are criminal. And if they're criminal, you need to deal with it at that level. And I would say this is important for the life of the church too. There are things that we'll deal in-house. But when you've crossed the line where, where, where the action is not only sinful against God, but a crime in our country, that, that we would need to deal with it at that level. And covering up crime in a church is devastating to the community and, or in a home. You know, there are those who would say, well, it's a sin, and you know, we need to deal with it in-house and try to make... Not if it's a crime, <laughs> right? No, if it's a crime, you call the proper authorities. At this level, it's a private and small matter between two people. God does not want broken relationships in his church. Jesus prayed for our unity, prays, prayed for our health and our peace. He prayed that we would be one. 
And he prayed that it would be such that, that the world would take notice and it would be attractive to the world, the life that even though we got problems, by God's grace, we graciously deal with them and we're upfront and honest with each other and we get involved and love each other enough to, to handle these things. So much so that in Matthew 5, here it says, if your brother sins against you, Go to him and tell him his sin. In Matthew 5, it says, if you're there at the altar offering your gift and there remember your brother has something against you, you did something and you know or you think that they're upset at you for something. So if you're offering your gift and they remember they have something against you, so whether you're the, they're the doer or you're the doer, he says you should leave your gift there at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. He says in the midst of, it, it interferes with your worship. If you're offering a gift and there you realize there's brokenness, leave your gift, go and be reconciled as part of your worship, and then come back and offer your gift. So that whether you're the perpetrator or the other one, I heard somebody say that, you know, that on the one hand, if, if they realize that your brother sinned against you, you should go and tell him. And, and if there he remembers that, he, that you have something against him, that he should go, you guys should cross in the hallway on your way to go tell and talk to each other. Go tell him. Go is the command. Go and talk to him. Have a conversation. And it comes as a command, not, not, not as a suggestion. It says you need to love them enough. You need to love the, the church enough that you would actually go and talk to them. Don't stew on it. Don't bury it. Certainly don't tell other people about it. Don't do nothing. Go and tell them. Go and tell them. I cannot express enough the importance of this in the life of the church. I, I can't, I, I literally don't think I could convey to you the importance that I see or feel that this is in the life of the church. I think 98% of our problems could be solved. Churches wouldn't split. Factions wouldn't form. Divisions wouldn't happen. Bitterness wouldn't take root as a foothold for the devil. It would be solved early, and it would be solved quickly if we would obey Jesus on this simple point. Small problems would almost never be turned into big problems. And they would be nipped in the bud. Jesus is literally the smartest human being that ever lived. Literally. I mean, he, the smartest human being with the wisdom of God himself. And he says, my friends, if there is, if your brother is caught in sin and whether it's a sin against you or not, get involved. Love them enough to risk all to get involved. And yet I think this is possibly the most disobeyed command by Christians. It's why there's so much brokenness and so many split churches and so many divisions and factions and bitterness and, and all the little talking that goes on and all that little happens out there and, you know, about... It's shocking how many hurt, frustrated, disappointed, angry, bitter people there are who just refuse to obey Jesus at this point. Desperately we need it. Let me take a moment by way of application and talk about a couple of the excuses 
that we use and that I've heard along the way. And the first one I hear sometimes is, well, I hear you, Robert, but I'm shy. And I hear you, but my friends, I have never seen anywhere in the Scripture where when God is giving one of His commands or Jesus is giving a command, that He gives exception for certain personality types. Right? Or, or for people who struggle with a certain thing, you know. But if you're an angry person or, you know, you're just kind of high-strung or whatever, never mind. Right? It, 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 there's not, like, exception for, for personality types. In, in, in fact, 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, I will give you what you need. <laughs> 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear. Right? His spirit. Not of fear, but of power. That is the grace and the strength to do what he commands. The power and the love to love people enough. He would give us a love that would overcome my shyness. My love for you, my concern for you and your caughtness would overcome my worries about me. That he would give us the power by his spirit and the love and the self-control. That is the ability to choose the self-control to make the, the right choices. Despite how we might feel. Right? This is, this is the work of the Spirit of God among the people of God. And so he says, seek God's grace and his help and the fullness of his Spirit. We want to obey all of his commands and not excuse ourselves on any of them because we feel we don't have the equipment. Because he says he will give you the equipment. Some tell me it's awkward and hard, Robert. I'm not doing that. <laughs> yes, it is. But we are not free to only obey the easy commands. So many of his commands are difficult. And how much would we follow him? We're just going to follow him where it's easy. <laughs> I'm going to follow Jesus on the easy stuff. The rest of it, I don't feel like I need to follow him because it's hard. Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross and die and follow. Right? This is the call. I hear people say it won't do any good. Probably have heard that one more than any. It won't do any good. I'm like, dude, you haven't talked to him. You need to go talk to him. Won't do any good. Why bother? They decide ahead of time. They judge the other person and their heart without a trial, without opportunity, right? Don't deprive. My friends, do not deprive someone of the opportunity to explain or to repent. I said to people along the way, like, don't deprive me of the opportunity to repent. If I need to repent, and you see it, right, or to explain, and I would say this, you know, on the prejudging thing, that there's a lot of room to give ourselves the opportunity to hear the other side of the story. We forget when we're either the offended party or wherever that there might still be another side to the story. There may not be things that we fully understand or fully seen or fully heard. So going and talking gives the opportunity for me to hear and the opportunity, if need be, for them to repent. But it gives opportunity, what, for communication. Too often we assume our own rightness in things. Right? And there's a certain self-righteousness that can take, can harden the heart in our rightness. To give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and assume the worst about everybody else. And Jesus says, go talk to him. And he says, between you and the person alone. You Go tell him, not, not anybody else, him between the two of you alone. Right? You see, he says it three times. Right? 
how important this is and how this is, you know, the second most neglected thing because what we do instead of going and obeying the command and telling them is we tell other people, right? We, we look for comfort. We look for support. We look for, you know, some backup. We look for people to know our story and to take up our offense and to be on our side. And so instead of going and actually having the conversation we should have, we have the conversation with other people, right? He says, go and tell them Monon in the Greek, alone, only. It's often translated as only. Go tell him, between him and you, alone, only. And how often we, backbiting is, is a Bible term, is often in Christian community. It's a talking behind people's backs. It's that we haven't, we're not having a conversation with them, but we are talking about it. It's called backbiting or gossip, and it's deadly. Literally creates division. See, the people that you tell, one of the things is that when you tell other people, so, so I'm having a problem. <laughs> uh, we'll pick on Stephen. I'm having a problem with Stephen. And so I tell Jason and I tell Sharon and then I, you know, tell Carol and I tell, you know, and, you know in the course of pray for me because, you, know, <laughs> you know, you know, or just, or mm, I'm just mad. Am I wrong about this or whatever it is? And I tell these folks and then, you know, and then I have the opportunity to bump into Stephen, and Stephen's like, dude, I was offering my gift at the altar, and they remembered I felt like you had something against me, so I came to talk to you, and we talked. And we, saw, we sort it out, and it's like, oh, you know, and we work it out, and there's repentance, and we work it out. And he feels pretty good about it now, and I feel pretty good about it now, but what about those other ten people? Like, there's irreparable damage. You're going to go find all those people that you told? <laughs> And even when you tell them, we've worked it out, never mind what I said, you know, there's good, you know. Even if you did go find everybody, they didn't have that, that connection and that healing. You, you've sucked them into something that isn't theirs. And what people do when they hear one side of the story, if they're not wise and give a chance for the other side, is that they take up your offense because they like you. They love you. They're on your side. They want to be on your side. And so, do not suck people into your sin. If he listens to you, he says. If you go and you tell him his fault, just the two of you alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Right? You've won him back from the brink. If he was caught in a sin, you've, 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 you've brought him to repentance and to health and to peace. And if there's been brokenness, you've brought healing. And where there was, you know, whatever it was, in the body of Christ, there was a crack. And you fixed it. And nobody else even knows but the two of you. That's a beautiful thing. If there was something, and, and, and we dealt with it, however bigger it was, and nobody else even knew. That's a beautiful thing. It's the biblical thing. It's the Jesus thing. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they are called the children of God. A couple of very quick things to wrap it up, and one is, is as we think of application, is simply this. We need to love the peace and purity of the church as much as Jesus does. That we would love it so much that we would be pursue it. The peace and the purity and the willingness to get involved. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And he says to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4, 
1 and through 3, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, he says, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's all one sentence. To walk worthy of the calling is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to be eager to fix it, eager to repent, eager to forgive, eager to be a part of the solution and not the problem. I would say this is for application. Before you go to the person, go to God. Pray, 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 pray. On your knees before God. For a lot of reasons. One is praying about that encounter. Praying that God would make my soft heart soft and gentle. Praying that their heart would be soft and receptive. Praying that God would work and do a miracle. Praying, you know, to get the log out of my own eye. Right? There may be things going on in my own heart, and I think I'm so right. I always think I'm so right. But then when somebody comes along and like, gets a grip on the log in my eye, and it's like, oh. Right? Get the log out of your own eye before you go after the speck in the other guy's eye. Right? To, to sit down and do business with God. Is there something I need to see and to know? Is, is, do I have some sin in this relationship that I need? Because if you go to him and you start with, here's where I sinned against you, and I'm really sorry. If you start with your repentance, that softens much ground. Go to God. Check your motives. Come in humility. Too often people want to go to the other person with the goal so that they know what they did. Right? How often do we hear that? I want them to know what they did. You know, I want them to know the hurt. That's not why you go to somebody. You need to spend a little more time with God first before you go. You're, you go to be reconciled. We go, we go to bring peace and harmony and life to the church. I go so that that he would give me the opportunity to forgive him by repenting, that, that I would be able to hear that maybe I need to repent, that we would do business, and I'm going to bring healing and reconciliation and whatever that might look like before it's all over, that we might both grow. Another application would be simply this. Do not listen to people criticize others to you. Don't listen to other people. If somebody comes to you and starts criticizing somebody else, I don't care who it is. Don't listen. Tell them just, whoa, 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 whoa. First question, have you talked to them? Right, that should be your first question if somebody says, have you talked to the person? If you haven't, you, need to, you, need to talk, you shouldn't be talking to me. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But please don't tell me this. Because, I, I mean, that is a temptation. I'll go with you. Right? I'll go with you. It's the next step. Like if you find it hard to go alone, bring one or two with you. I'll go with you, but don't, but don't be a part of it. Don't get sucked into someone else's sin. Gently tell them. If they don't listen, you're not done. Right? And that's what he says at the end of the beginning of 16. If he does not listen, you're not done. So come back next week and the next week. Because if they listen, 98% of your problems are solved and things are healed and you're done, right? If they don't listen, then you got to keep going. They're still stuck. And so we're going to go with that, and, and where does it go from there? But if they listen and they repent, here's the thing. It doesn't matter how big or small the sin is. It doesn't, like I said, it's nondescript. It doesn't tell you. It could be a huge sin. It could be uh, having an affair. They're, they're, in, they're committing adultery, and you've seen it. You've come to be aware of it. And you go talk to them, and they repent. 
right? And they break it off, and they go home, and they get some counseling, and you're, they're willing to let you help them, and they break it off. You've won your brother. That where there is repentance, there is forgiveness, and there is a way forward. Anytime. It doesn't matter how big the sin is. It doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter how many times you did the sin. When someone repents, the process stops. And you help them. And that's where the church is. Anytime we're involved, anytime there is repentance, we will do everything in our power to help you. We will pay money. We will give time. We will help you in any way we can to restore you to health and life in the church. No sin is too bad. No sin. If you're here this morning and today, you've not yet put your faith and your trust in Christ because you think my sin is unforgivable or I've sinned too much or I've sinned too big or I've sinned too whatever. And the Bible is so clear if anyone sins. And he repents and puts his faith and his trust in Christ. There is full and free forgiveness. So whether you're here and you've never done that before, don't let, don't let the, the lies of the past, the question is, will you turn and put your faith and trust in Christ and turn from your sin? If you, if you want to, if you want to follow Jesus, then put your trust in him. And he will help you. He will come into your life in a way, in powerful ways. He will put you in a family that you can come alongside and any one of us would come alongside and help you. And if you're a brother or sister here this morning and you're caught, find a brother or sister you trust and respect and let them help you. There's no sin too big. No way you could have done it too much. That God's grace and His mercy aren't new every morning. That there is free and full forgiveness. Help each other. Come alongside one another. Jesus calls us to. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that's living and true. And our need at this hour is the strength and the grace and the softness of heart and the conviction of will that we would obey. That we would repent where we have failed and that we would get involved, that we would go, that we would not allow excuses and lies to continue the damage and the hurt in the lives of God's people, your people. Have mercy upon us and help us to see the truth and by the grace of your spirit to live it. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.